God's intended purpose for music in the worship service is never to induce worship, but to express it. And thank you, musicians, for helping us to that end. What a joy it is to be able to have an opportunity for the doxologies of our heart to be expressed in such a magnificent way. Will you take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? We're moving away from our exposition of 2 Corinthians this week and maybe for a few weeks to come. Given the situation in our country, I thought I would address some matters that are coming to my attention. I must say that never before in my lifetime have I experienced what we're experiencing today, which, by the way, not only includes great difficulties surrounding the chaos and the confusion and the animus in our country, but also the profound hunger people are having for truth. This morning I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to just jump right in to verse 12 through 19 under the heading of rejoicing at the fiery ordeal. And we're, it's not a real fiery ordeal that we're experiencing now, but it very well could be, and no doubt it will be as time moves on. Follow along as I read what Peter has to say under the inspiration of the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what shall be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. A few days ago, I received a text from one of the young pastors that I've been mentoring for some time. And he was gravely concerned about something. He wanted me to call him, which I did. And he said, Dave, I'm struggling. My church is struggling. We know they're still counting votes, but it looks like the Biden-Harris people, the Democrats, will gain the White House. We know how corrupt and how evil these people really are. And our people are afraid. They know that we are to 
submit to the authority that God places over us, regardless of how evil they might be, as long as, as we don't do something that God would forbid. We understand Romans 13. But, he said, our people are frustrated. They don't really know how to respond. What are you telling your people can you help? That's kind of a paraphrase of what he said. And what is interesting, within two days, I had three other pastors call me saying the same things, and I've lost count how many people, some even in my own congregation here, that share the same burden. There's a lot of fear, a lot of despair in the air. Many believers express how there's kind of a a malevolent darkness that has covered our land, like the choking fumes of a dense smog. Many believe, as I do, this is the harbinger of impending judgment on our country. We already know that we're experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment, and we're seeing evidence of that more and more. And while many will laugh and call all of this just the hyperbole of religious fanatics, those of us who know and love Christ know what we see, we know what we feel, we're able to discern. He who is spiritual appraises all things. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2. So we know what's going on. And to be sure, these are frightening times. And while many of the policies of the right, the Republicans, are blatantly unbiblical, what the democratic socialists are bringing to the table is beyond the pale. Their neo-Marxist agenda combined with the immoral policies that they hold to, which God calls an abomination, are satanic to the core. And secular extremists and anti-Christian forces that are already at work at the federal, state, and local government realm will continue to use these things to threaten our religious freedom. Just their commitment to pass the Equality Act betrays their disdain for Christ and Christianity, an animosity that is eclipsed only by just their contempt for our glorious God and His Word. The Equality Act is a proposed bill that would add, quote, sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes under federal civil civil rights law. This will be a powerful legal tool that they will use to force their values on others if passed into law. The Heritage Foundation explains this danger. Let me quote you a bit of it. Quote, where the original Civil Rights Act of 1964 furthered equality by ensuring that African Americans had equal access to public accommodations and material goods, The Equality Act would further inequality by penalizing everyday Americans for their beliefs about marriage and biological sex. Similar sexual orientation and gender identity laws at the state and local level have already been used in this way. 
They went on to say the Equality Act would force employers and workers to conform to new sexual norms or else lose their businesses and jobs. It would force hospitals and insurers to provide and pay for those therapies against any moral or medical objections. It would politicize medicine by forcing professionals to act against their best medical judgment and provide transition-affirming therapies. It would ultimately harm families by normalizing hormonal and surgical intervention for gender dysphoric children, as well as ideological, quote, education in schools and other public venues. They went on to add it would put parental rights to make decisions about their children's medical treatment and education at risk. It would ultimately lead to the erasure of women by dismantling sex-specific facilities sports, and other female-only places. I'm sorry, female-only spaces. It would also hurt charities, volunteers, and the populations they serve. A federal sexual orientation and gender identity law would empower the government to interfere in how regular Americans think, speak, and act at home, at school, at work, and at play. Any bill promoting such authoritarianism is a danger to our freedom, freedoms, end quote. I personally know of many Christians, some here in this worship center, who have already lost their jobs because they refuse to bow to these agendas. To be sure, faithful believers will not bow to the gods of this culture. They will not attend the diversity and sensitivity workshops that are forced upon them in the workplace. They will not bow to critical race theory or radical feminism or the LGBTQ perversions. They will not participate in the gay pride parades or the celebrate diversity festivities. They will not allow their children to be indoctrinated by leftist elites in our public schools who embrace the neo-Marxist social justice and LGBTQ agendas, and they will not comply with government officials who exceed their legitimate jurisdiction and impose unnecessary restrictions on church services based on exaggerated health fears related to the COVID pandemic. Beloved, because of our love for the one who first loved us, we will not bow to the gods of this culture. To government officials, we respectfully say with the apostles in Acts 4.19, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And of course, our unreserved answer to that question is the same as the apostles that we read about in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. We fear God, not man. No matter how many hate crime bills they pass to harass, intimidate, and silence, and even jail us, because we dare to disagree with the societal norms of of politically correct orthodoxy, we are going to serve the one true and living God. Despite all of the threats, 
Our response will be the same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar when he threatened to burn them alive unless they bowed to the image that he had made of himself. They said this in Daniel 3, verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, historically, the two main persecutors of the church have always been secular government and false religion. And both of them are alive and well in our country today and around the world. So what we see here in the United States is nothing new. Indeed, as Scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. You may remember that after the Apostle Paul was stoned and left for dead, we read how he gets up and he goes into a town and he strengthens and encourages the disciples to continue on in the faith. And here's what he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14. And in the last of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 11 and through 12. Now, dear friends, my purpose here is not to inflame hatred towards those who hate us. Not at all. We must love them for the sake of the gospel. They are our mission field. My purpose here is to edify the saints, to encourage the saints. May I remind you that the people of the first century, like people today, resented the message of the gospel. They hated Christians. There was already plenty of hatred to go around between the Jews and the Gentiles. And they considered Christianity, Christianity to just be another extremist faction of Judaism. In the first century, they had their own fake news. They had their own spin machine. They said that, well, Christians are cannibals because they eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ during the Lord's Supper. That they participate in immoral orgies because they greet one another with a holy kiss and they love to spend time around one another. They're insurrectionists because they bow only to King Jesus and say that they're citizens of another kingdom and on and on it goes. And by the time Peter wrote this epistle to the saints that were scattered abroad in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, the animosity against Christians was so strong that it was trending towards genocide. The barbaric and insane Emperor Nero used this mounting hatred to advance his political agenda. He used it to his advantage. You may recall that because of his insatiable appetite to build and glorify himself, he set Rome on fire in AD 64. And of course, he blamed it on the Christians. 
Roman historian Tacitus said that Christians were blamed not only for burning Rome, but also for their hatred of the human race. How often do you hear us being accused of being hate mongers? Christians were subject to the fiendish tortures of Nero. It was great sport for them to sow bloody hides on Christians and release them into an arena so that they would be torn to pieces by wild animals. Thousands of Christians were crucified. Many were dipped in wax and set on fire to illuminate the gardens of Nero as he wildly drove his chariot around in a drunken stupor in his own private hippodrome. It was in this context that both Paul and Peter and many others were ultimately martyred. And folks, it was on the, on the precipice of this inconceivable era of suffering that Peter penned these words. As things worsened, by the way, as the fourth century rolled around, the emperor Diocletian tried to utterly destroy Christianity until Constantine came to the rescue around A.D. 313. But soon after Constantine, you have the Middle Ages that comes along and Satan is alive and well and he deceives people with false teachers. Even Christians lose their ability to discern and as a result, an apostate religious system was organized. It became politically powerful. It was called the Roman Catholic Church, and it took up the satanic banner of destroying the gospel of Christ. Millions of Christians were then, over the next years, tortured and killed during the Inquisition. Tens of millions from that day forward have been killed, especially by the Jesuits and their alliance with communist regimes. And today the persecution continues. It, it, it's mild in many places, but it's growing, especially in Europe. But it's already catastrophic in communist and Islamic countries. According to the Voice of the Martyrs, 200 million will be severely persecuted this year. 160,000 Christians will be killed this year, 44 plus per day, almost one person every 30 minutes. But dear friends, God has not left us powerless. That's the bad news. Now that I've got you all depressed, let me give you the good news. Our God reigns. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. And ultimately, he will gain the victory, as will we, because of Christ. Holy Spirit dwells within us. He has given each of us spiritual gifts to be able to minister to one another. In fact, Peter said in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted, us to, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we have all we need to persevere in the faith during these very 
difficult times. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Aren't you thankful for that? Now here in verses 12 through 19, Peter gives instruction to the saints that are experiencing much greater persecution than what we are even close to. He wants them to have some spiritual perspective in order to be able to persevere during time of severe trial. And I think it's good for us to keep this in mind as we move forward in our lives. Four spiritual perspectives. Number one, he's going to say you need to expect persecution. Number two, persevere with joy. Number three, suffer in righteousness. And finally, trust in God's purpose and power. Now, may I remind you again of the context here. Christians are being persecuted, but all they had was the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament to pick up like we do. Um, They depended upon the revelatory spiritual gifts um, for edification from the apostleship, the, the There were people that had gifts of prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. They couldn't pick up a New Testament, so God provided other ways. By the way, all of those revelatory gifts and confirmatory gifts became obsolete at the close of New Testament revelation. There is no more inspired, authoritative revelation that God gives. If you hear somebody say, God told me this or God told me that, you need to run in the other direction. So, let's look at the text closely here and be encouraged by it. First of all, he, he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This brings us to the very first point in my simple little outline, and that is we need to expect persecution. It's kind of hard for us as Americans because we've never had much of that. In other words, don't think that just because you're a child of God that everything's going to be a bed of roses. Don't think that just because you're an American and you've got the Constitution that everything's going to be just fine. Don't be surprised. The term in the original language is is don't be astonished. Don't be shocked. It's that idea. Don't be taken aback at the fiery ordeal among you. Folks, this is the cost of discipleship. Again, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, this needs to be part of our gospel witness. We need to warn people. I want to tell you about Christ. I want you to come to Christ. But you need to know that if you come to Christ truly and you live for him, you're going to be persecuted in varying ways. Jesus taught this. Remember in Luke 12 or Luke 14, beginning in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. In other words, unless your supreme devotion to me is superior to everything else in life and that you're willing to detach yourself from all of those things to serve me, then you really are not one of my disciples. 
This is the cost of discipleship. Everything else seems like hatred in comparison. He goes on to say, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? He goes on to say, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? You see, folks, only those who are willing to unconditionally surrender all they have and all they are can be his disciple. That's what he's saying. Don't be surprised then at this fiery ordeal. By the way, fiery ordeal really speaks to three important truths. First of all, it provides a picture of pain associated with testing, the crucible of grace as we call it. Crucible was a metallurgy term. Um, It was that hollow area at the bottom of the furnace where the metal collects. And so testing can be painful. Secondly, this picture is the process of spiritual refinement. You know, the fires of adversity have ways of purifying our hearts. Those fires temper the steel of our faith. And we can all attest to this. We've all been through difficulties before, and we've seen what God has done. So don't be surprised at your testing. He says in verse 12, as though some strange thing were happening to you, as if somehow this is an accident. And thankfully, we know, according to Romans 8, 28, that all things, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But the third thing we need to remember, and this is very important, and I want to challenge you with this today. The fires of persecution purge the church of mere professors of Christ. By the way, this is why Satan prefers to join a church rather than attack it. Every metric shows a steady decrease in practicing Christians, which proves they were Christian in name only. That's what we see in our country today. They went out from us, according to 1 John 2.19, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. According to a Barna Group research on the church, we read this. In 2000, 45% of all who sampled qualified as practicing Christians, all right? That's in 2000, 45%. That share has consistently declined over the last 19 years. Now, just one in four, 25%, is a practicing Christian in America. In essence, the share of practicing Christians has nearly dropped in half since 2000. Where did these practicing Christians go? The data indicate that their shift was evenly split. Half of them fell away from consistent faith engagement, essentially becoming non-practicing Christians while the other half moved into the non-Christian segment. This shift also contributed to the growth of the atheist, agnostic, non-segment, or non-segment that they have in their research, which was nearly, has nearly doubled in size during that same amount of time. 
In other words, since 2003 and 2018, we see the doubling of all of this. And of course, America already mirrors the dark paganism of Europe. Whenever I go over there, you can just feel the oppression. According to the American Worldview Inventory of 2020, we see how religious syncretism has basically become the dominant religious worldview. Popular beliefs include, first of all, that there is no absolute moral truth. 58% of the people believe that. The basis of truth are, are factors that do not come from God. 58% of people believe that. Right and wrong is determined by factors other than the Bible, says 77% of the people. 69% of the people believe that the Bible is not authoritative and the true word of God and that people are basically good. And 79% believe that the personal definition of success is not based on consistent obedience to the word of God. And of course... That means, dear friends, that we are hopelessly outnumbered, right? And we are despised. Uh, It reminded me of one of the early church fathers. In 197, Tertullian addressed the provincial governors of the Roman Empire in defense of Christianity because of the unreasonable hostility that they were pouring out upon Christians. And he, worded, he wrote a work called Apologeticus. And in that work, he coined the phrase, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Perhaps you've heard that before. He directly addressed the Roman Empire. And I won't read all that he said because it's quite lengthy, but I want you to hear this. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere not like slaves or criminals, and when they find out, they join us, end quote, which was a fascinating phenomenon. Many of the Roman soldiers that put them to death saw how they endured death, saw their faith, and joined right in with them. That's the power of a Christian testimony. That's the power of the gospel. And while we don't experience anything near this, We see it coming our way. And aren't you thankful that the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has promised that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. A great illustration is of how God preserves his church and grows it in adversity is to consider what's happening in North Korea. Open Doors is an organization that serves persecuted Christians in more than 60 countries. And they say that North Korea is, quote, the most dangerous place in the world to follow Jesus. 
I was reading about that just this last week. Kim Chung Seong, a North Korean defector, now working as a Christian missionary, says despite the persecution faced by Christians in the world's most difficult place for Christians, the church continues to grow. Don't you love it? The church continues to grow. The article went on to say, the one thing that the North Korean regime fears the most and is afraid of is the spreading of the gospel. He went on to say, because the Bible and the gospel speaks the truth. Once the light shines in the dark room, there is light in the room. They, referring to the government, will do anything to prevent the spread of the gospel in North Korea. But as you can see, we cannot block the sunlight with our hand. He went on. Christians are forced to hide their faith completely from government authorities. Neighbors and often, neighbors and often even their own spouses and children have to hide. Due to ever-present surveillance, many pray with eyes open, and gathering for praise or fellowship is practically impossible. Worship of the ruling Kim family is mandated for all citizens. And those who don't comply, including Christians, are arrested, imprisoned, tortured, or killed. Entire Christian families are imprisoned in hard labor camps where unknown numbers die each year from torture, beatings, overexertion, and starvation. Those who attempt to flee to South Korea through China risk execution or life imprisonment, and those who stay behind often fare no better. So folks, don't be surprised with the fiery ordeal. Rather, anticipate persecution. Secondly, he tells the saints to persevere with joy. Notice in verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. In other words, to the degree or in direct proportion that you share in the sufferings of Christ, to that degree you will be rewarded. The more the suffering, the more the reward. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who have, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And notice when the reward will be given, all right? At the revelation of his glory. This is very important. Not in this life, as the televangelist and the prosperity preacher would have you believe. Discipleship is all about self-denial, not about self-indulgence. The apostle understood this. He endured enormous suffering because of his love for Christ, because of his gospel message. But nothing distracted him from having the proper perspective. In fact, you will recall in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 17, he said, momentary light affliction. I love that, light affliction. It could be translated as a weightless trifle. And when you read what he endured, it's like unbelievable. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Back to what Peter said in verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, it's the spirit of God that provides relief, that provides blessing. His presence, I love this, rests upon us. The term carries the idea of bringing relief and refreshment, providing assistance in the midst of adversity. And isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit does that? We've all experienced that in those difficult times. That soul-satisfying joy of the Spirit's presence in our life. And he causes the Word of God to come alive in certain situations. He brings a friend at the right time. He brings a song. There's so many things that he does. You remember when Stephen was being stoned, we read in Acts 6 how his face was like that of an angel. There's the Spirit resting upon his own. So anticipate persecution, persevere with joy, but number three, suffer in righteousness. Notice verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Practically speaking, dear friends, there is never a legitimate reason for a Christian to take to the streets and to loot and to burn. No place for Christian terrorism. There is never a justification for revenge. God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And my is he creative in how he repays. I think of Nebuchadnezzar who ended up eating grass along with many other things. There's no excuse, excuse to be what he says here, a troublesome meddler. By the way, that, that could be translated an agitator. Um, one who looks after the affairs of other people, one who intrudes or meddles into things that are really none of their business. Evidently, some of them were engaging in some of that. Some of them were social, societal troublemakers, social activists. No place for that. If we're going to suffer, we do so for the sake of the gospel, right? We preach it, we live it. And thus in verse 16, he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, by the way, he, he puts Christian in there because that was a derisive term, all right? That was like a nasty word if you were called a Christian. So he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. And here's how you do it, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We need to understand that. Now, by the way, he's not referring here to to condemnation on sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8.1. But rather, he's referring to the refining fires of divine chastening upon the church. And my, are we seeing that today? There's been a catastrophic failure in evangelical leadership over the years. People have been fed all kinds of superficial drivel, sermonettes that are as shallow as water on a plate. They have no understanding of the glorious truths of the gospel. 
They've been banished to an island of spiritual infancy. They never grow up. They never mature. And when you look at them, they're indistinguishable from the world. You're going to see a lot of those people abandon their church because they were never truly born again. And they're going to search out churches where they're going to hear the truth. Verse 17, he goes on to say, and if it begins with us first, in other words, this judgment, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Indeed, God chastens those that he loves. And we know that God ordains our afflictions, even our sufferings at the hands of evil people for his eternal purposes, for our sanctification. In fact, his saving purposes are always concealed in calamity. We know that he's always up to something. He's our loving Heavenly Father. We rejoice in that. But folks, as difficult as that chastening might be in the life of a Christian, think how horrible his judgment will be in the lives of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason, dear friends, we need to have a sincere burden for the lost. We need to pray for these people. We need to love them enough to give them the gospel. He goes on by quoting Proverbs 11.31 from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Verse 18, he says, "And and if it is with difficulty... In other words, due to the divine testing that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What he's simply saying is the Christian suffering in this life is nothing to be compared to the eternal suffering of unbelievers. And this is what motivated him and should motivate all of us to evangelism. Our suffering is but for a moment, but theirs is for eternity. Absolutely incomprehensible. Paul spoke of this very thing. You will recall in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 5, when he affirmed the perseverance and faith of the believers there in Thessalonica. He said, in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you, you endure, he says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Beloved, this must be our perspective in times of persecution, in times of difficulty. Isn't it amazing how these times really cause us to loosen our grip on the world, right? It detaches us from this world. I I can truthfully say that while 
I've never been more concerned about mounting persecution. At the same time, I've never been filled as much with joy as I have and excitement, and I just long to go home. (laughs) Don't you? I just long to go home. This isn't my home. I don't belong here. Neither do you, if you know Christ. So he says, anticipate persecution. He says, persevere in joy, suffer in righteousness, and then finally, trust in God's purposes, verse 19. Therefore, let those who let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The word entrust was a, was a banking term. To entrust something for safekeeping carries the idea of depositing something in a safe place, something of great value, something that needs to be protected. Deposit it someplace that is trustworthy. And as Christians, we must always trust in his purpose, in his power to accomplish all that he has decreed. So we trust in him. Our faith is in him. You will recall in 1 Peter 2, 23, the example of Jesus, Peter says, while suffering, he uttered not threats, but kept, catch this, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And later on, according to Luke 23, 46, we read, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Beloved, there is nothing more trustworthy in the universe than our faithful creator. All that we believe we can take to the bank and he's the bank, okay? That's the idea here. He's the creator, not only of the first heaven and earth, but the new heaven and the new earth that he will create one day. So worshiping and trusting God as the faithful creator is absolutely essential. Remember this when you hear the bad news, when these difficult things come along. I don't know what will happen. They may see... And, and this is one thing that I know they're pushing, homeschooling's out. No more homeschooling. It's already illegal to spank your child in Washington. It will probably be that if any of us preach against homosexuality, we will endure what they're enduring in Canada and other places, and we will be jailed, or certainly... We will lose our tax-exempt status. Are you all still going to give when you don't get to deduct it? You see, it's all of these types of things that are coming our way. And when they do, are you going to trust in your faithful creator? Say, Lord, I don't know all that's going on here, and certainly my heart is breaking, but I know that you are up to things in my life and in your world to bring glory to yourself. And to that end, I will trust you, come what may. Oh, child of God, what consolation, what assurance we have, what security we have in the lover of our souls. No one will ever steal our soul from our faithful creator. I just love that term, our faithful creator. Let me close with Paul's words in Romans 8. 
so encouraging, beginning in verse 35. You're familiar with this text. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But, he says, in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear friends, I hope you have entrusted yourself to your faithful creator. And you do that by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith and asking him to pour out his mercy and his grace upon you as a sinner, knowing that he alone is your only hope of salvation, knowing that he died in your stead, bearing your sin in his body on the cross so that you would not have to pay for it in an eternal hell. And not only did he do that, but your sins were forgiven and he imputed to you his righteousness so that we might enter into the presence of a holy God based upon what Christ has done on our behalf. Folks, that's the gospel. I hope you believe it. If not, you will one day bow before Jesus, but not as your Savior and Lord but as your judge and executioner. So trust him while there is still time. And saints, let's be encouraged, all right? Let's be encouraged. God is at work. He's in charge. And we can rejoice knowing that his purposes will be accomplished in our lives and in his created universe. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. Cause them to bear much fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.